lightning. Inspirational. Inspirational. Powerfully refining. Powerfully refining. And unapologetically controversial. Conversations with the Royal Impress. The entire world knows the secret of who you are. Now is the time to step into your queendom and become the Royal Empress that you're meant to be. One woman at a time. Conversations with the Royal Empress. Now Akima, she's the analytical Empress. Akima, she's the Empress that will challenge you. Now, straighten up your crown and be elevated through conversation. Conversation with the Royal Empress. Welcome to season two, episode seven, of Conversations with the Royal Empress. This is Dr. Hakima, and joining me is my sister of the struggle. You all know who she is, Akila. Also joining us is a very special, special co-host we have. We have Dr. Elisa P. Bell with us today, everyone. Let me tell you a little bit about our sister, okay? Dr. Bell is a scholar, an educator, a board-certified physician in adult and adolescent psychiatry a medical practitioner for over 30 years, and she has been practicing in three states, Illinois, Michigan, and Indiana. She's a specialist in treating affective disorders, ADHD, disruptive behavioral disorders, autism spec spectrum disorders in childhood, I mean, children and adolescents. And she is an author of Are You Culturally Competent? Which she would talk about it today with us. Today's topic is defining and recognizing trauma and its effect on our adolescent children. Dr. Bell, go ahead and um, say hello to our audience. Greetings, uh, <laughs> how is everyone? Thank you for inviting me here today, uh, Dr. Muhammad and Ms. Makila. I am blessed, Madasi. Thank you, sis. Well, again, our topic is defining and recognizing trauma and its effect on our adolescent children. With today's traumatic uh, events that have been going on, this is a well-needed conversation. So Dr. Bell, if you could really define trauma for us, because we really need to have that defined. Well, first let's talk about um, trauma. Let's talk about anxiety. We're gonna, we're gonna start from the point. So trauma creates anxiety. And anxiety may or may not produce, uh, create post-traumatic stress disorder. The most prevalent mental illness across the adult population here in America and the child and adolescent population, I treat children 3 to 17, as well as I do treat adults 18 to 65, is anxiety. A third of people who are exposed to trauma, they hear about somebody getting shot, they see somebody getting shot, or they got shot. They have an acute, they, for the first 30 days, they can have an acute uh, reaction. After 30 days, it turns into a post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll stop there for now. Ooh, that was heavy. <laughs> 
Ooh, that was heavy. I, you know, I didn't even really look, look at it from a standpoint of, of it all beginning from anxiety, but that was just, ooh, that was, that was profound. What you think about that, Akilah? I just, um, <laughs> I mean, I just really wanted to hear um, more of what the doctor had to say, because you're, um, you're saying that it starting with the anxiety um, aspect of it. <sighs> And what we witness, so many things right now. Even watching things on the news, do you think that still has that same effect? You know what I mean. Like sometimes you don't necessarily see it, but there are people who see it in person, and then there are those who are just seeing it secondhand, so to speak. Okay. So you don't necessarily have to see it or be a victim of of the violence, you can just hear about it and you can be traumatized. So trauma comes in many forms. You can be traumatized early in life by a physical abuse, mental abuse, uh, emotional abuse. You can be a victim of a war in another country. You could be a child growing up in a country where there's prolonged, enduring civil wars. You can be, you could have been a victim in Katrina where there's a natural disaster. Uh, these are all traumas. And the most prevalent mental illness in the whole DSM-5, yeah, our, our Bible for mental illness is anxiety. That's the most prevalent disorder. It's more prevalent than depression, schizophrenia, psychosis, autism. Um, okay, so what happens in trauma in children, a child can be traumatized as early as 12 months, six months. A child can be traumatized at, or an adolescent at any age as well as an adult, but we're going to focus on children and adolescents today, okay? So when someone presents to my office, well, first, when they present to the clinic where I work, there's a screening called the Adverse Childhood Experience, and that's a ACE study. It was pretty well known from the research in 1998. An Adverse Childhood Experience is, a, is an individual that lived in a home or lived in a home who've been exposed to some type of trauma. It's a long list. Someone in the family is mentally ill. Someone in the family has substance abuse issue. Someone's been to jail. My, you know, there's a domestic violence in the home. There's somebody who's chronically sick. Somebody who's, you know, on and on and on. These are all adverse childhood experiences. And after the age of 18, if you've had more than four, it increases your chances of having some physiological, not just mental, but physiological health problems like hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, obesity, so forth and so on. So when a child is traumatized, let's say somebody who is nonverbal, they may express this through some of the symptoms um, immediately within the week. They may have problems sleeping, poor appetite, uh, they may have nightmares, and they're just not on point. They can't focus at the daycare. An older adolescent, they, they'll talk about these stories. They'll be verbal about it. They'll share the stories. They become frightened, sometimes paranoid. So this is, this is naturally occurring. That's natural in response to some form of a trauma within 30 days. And if a person, if a child, a young person, doesn't get the support from a parent or a guardian, with the community which they reside in the school system, they don't recognize and get this child to, to you know, some help, 
30 days later, that may, if this continues, this type of symptoms continues, that can develop into a full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's where they will definitely, somebody by there hopefully will be called someone, call someone like myself or a clinician that can help not just the child, but the family. A lot of people don't know that if someone has been exposed to something, that they're, that they're even supposed to watch or that they even know that, oh, okay, this is something that can affect my child. My child has been exposed to this. And so, and, or, or perhaps the parent has been exposed and they're experiencing the trauma too. And so they can't recognize it in the child because they're going through their own issues. So I, I mean, like, how do we even reconcile something like that? So that, that's a good point because uh, I heard someone say on the news the other day that I think it was that little girl who was crying at the march in Houston and the police officer ran over to her. It was a black, young black child. I think she was five years old. Her name was Simone. And, and the police officer said, why are you crying? And, and the mother was trying to get to her. And she, she told the, police, the white police officer, are you going to shoot us? So the, when, a parent, when a parent has trauma, she, they don't know they have trauma. The child looks at the parent for security, for safety, and they can, they, you know, they, they can, they, they're cognizant and they can recognize that even though verbally they can't explain it. Look, my mother's stressed. So it, 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 so it translates and it becomes difficult for the child. The child doesn't feel protected and becomes anxious. It started playing a lot of symptoms. So, so PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is different in children and adolescents and adults. It's different in children because they act out, their symptoms are different. In adults, you have blood pressure changes, they're hypervigilant, they're angry, they're agitated. Generally in children, they're off point in their daily functioning. They may start wetting the bed, they're not on focus, not on point in, in school, they're not eating, they're not sleeping. Uh, and adolescents who are verbal, they want to talk about it. They want to write about it. They want to have conversations about it. Um, and they, they, they're not positive. They feel that there's no future. There, you know, there's some, an old period of time, if it doesn't get any, uh, they don't get any help, they may become depressed and sometimes even suicidal. And if you let it continue, they may start hallucinating, not, be, not becoming, losing contact with reality, hallucinating, becoming paranoid, seeing things. Uh, so this is very important that a parent can recognize some of these symptoms in the early adolescence, as well as the children. So... When someone exposed to trauma, watching the TV, what's happening now in the world, um, the parents should have conversations and let the child talk, let the child express himself and see where the child is. And they're going to express it and they're going to exhibit some symptoms. And over, uh, so just, 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 make, just make sure that the child feels safe, uh, nurtured, and listen to your child because they're going to bring this up over and over again. But if, if it's prolonged uh, over a 30-day period of time, it's, 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 we classify that as post-traumatic stress disorder. And the treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder in children and adolescents is to seek out some help. And I know that black people uh, from history and for practicing for 31 years, seeing children and adolescents, we have, there's a stigma in our community. Mm -hmm. If somebody don't look like us, talk like us, uh, understand our value system, don't, 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 it's not hooked up in our belief system, they don't want to go to that individual. And unfortunately, and I discussed this in my book, Are You Culturally Competent? There's a small percentage of black psychiatrists or even Latino psychiatrists in the United States, as well as a small percentage of 
psychologists, PhDs who does who do testing and therapy and, and therapists and therapists. So this is an issue. And I believe that uh, Taraji Henderson expressed it best on the, on the, the view one day when she had just lost her father, Boris, and, and, her, and her, her father, the father of her child, like a week apart, and she tried to get some therapy, and she couldn't find anybody that was culturally competent. And as a result, she created a foundation for this. Um, but some of the treatments uh, for a child who's nonverbal is play therapy. And they will act this out in their therapy, or they will draw pictures. And we have people who are excellent in providing that type, particular type of care with younger kids. Um, and uh, for older individuals who are verbal, and you have to be patient with kids, parents, let, let them know that the therapist should be patient and wait till the child expresses himself. Just continue because there's a trust level, particularly with younger kids. Uh, but in older adults, they have in, in older kids, they have different forms of therapy. Trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which is number one. Number two, EMDR, eye movement, dissertation reprocessing that's work that's very efficient. And there's other forms of therapy that I'm not gonna go into detail. If a child doesn't progress uh, in a certain amount of time that the therapist feels that the child should get better and is interrupting his functioning at school, on the playground, with his cousins, or even in a home, he's too disruptive, he's become more aggressive or more violent, he's just not functioning, then that, then that therapist will probably refer him to see someone like myself. And I have to gauge where the parents are as far as medications. I, I, can, I tell parents I can give the best medication, the great, the best amount of medication, the correct amount of medication for a disorder, for, 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 for a mental illness, for anxiety and PTSD, but it's not gonna work without the therapy. Because when I take care of the symptoms, the underlying issue of the trauma is still there and still needs to be talked out and worked out. Uh, so studies have showed out of the University of Michigan, where I train, go blue, <laughs> uh, show that white people live 3.6 3. to 4 years longer than black people because they have privilege as far as economics, uh, their social environment, uh, white privilege. We can go down, we can talk about all the social determinants of health. They, they're privileged. They have everything. But why is it that white people have the most anxiety and depression uh, in certain traumatic situations as, as compared to black people? Well, we live in poverty. We have poor education. We have, we have terrible health care outcomes. But why is it that we don't suffer the mental illness, the level of mental illness and anxiety that they suffer? Well, I'm going to ask that from Dr. Muhammad or Akila. What do you think? I was sitting here waiting for the answer. <laughs> right. I was sitting there like, <laughs> okay. So, is it because we're melanated people? I mean, it, does that play a role in it? Or Now, I, I, I was going to tell you what I was thinking. Go ahead, uh, <laughs> And I, honestly, I, I, I would imagine that we see the numbers because they're the ones that are in the system getting diagnosed and getting the help. And we're not necessarily, um, I think just because of the, the disparities in our belief system that we learn to cope with things at home. And so we're not really diagnosed. I don't think that that takes away the fact that they have it 
more, so to speak, that we don't have it more, but I just don't think that statistically the numbers are there because we're not being treated. But Okay, well, that's, that's a good answer. But let me say this, but we have, uh, we have a lot of adversities. We have racism, poverty, community violence, uh, social isolation, uh, racist isolation or segregation. We have illnesses and we have poverty with, yeah, that's like I said, with poor education. But we have resilience because 300 years in slavery and then more oppression, Jim Crow, you know, civil war, and now oppression, more and more oppression. You know, get your knee off my neck. But why is it that we have less anxiety and depression? Because white people, the privileged people, white privileged, they haven't been exposed to adversities. They don't have the adaptation skills or the coping skills that we have. We're resilient despite all the challenges that we have. Now, I'm going to put it out there in the universe because I have to be true to myself. If you were to take the DNA of a woman my age, uh, a white woman, um, and we have, we have the, soul, the same social economic status, you take her DNA and you take my DNA, if you unravel her DNA, which is long DNA, it's shorter than mine. Hers is six revolutions. Mine is nine or greater. Why do you think that is? Come on, Dr. Muhammad. <laughs> I don't have an answer to that. Well, let me tell you what that is. That too. I just let me tell you what that is. Let me tell you what that <laughs> is. Okay? I carry my ancestral DNA. And we're the longest people here on earth. 300 years we've been here. 300, 350 years. So your ancestor is, is riding on that DNA. Mm-hmm. And their DNA just came about when they first existed 8,000 years ago. And this was just proven at the University of Pennsylvania five years ago, where their phenotype was first discovered. So I'm, so I'm riding on an inherent resilience in my DNA. There was a study that my late mentor, the famous uh, great Dr. Carl Compton Bell, shared with me and supervision with me back in 19, I, was, I think it was probably, maybe it was like in 2000. He shared to me in supervision, he said, why is it that you think um, the most resilient people, who do you think the most resilient individual on earth is today and even in the past? Definitely us. Definitely us. African-American women. African-American Because we pray. We practice prayer, Mm -hmm. spirituality. Mm-hmm. On the slave ship, um, on the on on on, on, you know, on the plantations today in church, and when we pray and all come together, that energy, it improves our immune immune system, immunology, our immune system to fight off different insults to the system. When I was a pediatrician at Loyola in my training many years ago, over thirty years ago, and I had to do uh, neonatal intensive care work, I was on call, and I remember one night. Uh, doing like, I had to go to five or six, six, six sections and I had to intubate, intubate children and revive them. And my, and my attending physician asked me, so you got an African-American female who's premature that's been exposed to drugs. You got an a African-American premature baby here that you intubated also who's been exposed to drugs. And you also have a white and, and, and male and female premature babies. Who do you think is going to live the longest? And he had me go do the research and come back the next day. And what I found that there was something in the protoplasm 
of these African-American female, female babies. And they were the ones that lived the longest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm preaching to the choir. No, no, if you had no. asked that question, I would have had an answer for you. <laughs> and we as African-Americans in our culture, we've created to, 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 to maintain that resilience. We created a village. Mm. When, I, when I went to, for the first time, when I went to Africa, I went in 2001 and met Winnie Mandela and talked to her for an hour in Soweto. But then a couple years later, I went to, uh, I was invited to go to Ghana and I took the bus, paid 35 cents. I act like I was, I've been there all my life and went to the school and, and I was, I had an appointment with the headmistress of the school. And I talked to, I think it was like 250 some African girls from the ages of 15 to 18 about life. And I realized after talking with them and them sharing with me, this has just been transferred across the ocean, that community, that village. And I talk about this in my introduction in my book. Uh, and it takes a village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. And, and Clinton, Hillary Clinton wrote that book in 2000. She has an African proverb. She got that from right. a Nigerian. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we all know what that's about. So the village um, is, is, ha- has dissipated to some degree, but I think we're at, we're at the point now with what's recent ha- recently happened with COVID that's afflicting our people, African-American descent and the diaspora more than individuals um, who are of other nationalities and the brown people as well. And then the racism uh, that causes more stress on the immune system. And we've been able to endure all these, all these levels of oppression. And they said that the they said that the, the Christian Bibles were written under seven different periods of oppression. Um, so we we have we are very resilient people, we're spiritual people, uh, and we do maintain a culture. And we have to get back to self. We have to While we pass down that resiliency. Mm-hmm. What of the effects of slavery uh, and Jim Crow and the civil rights era? How is that trauma passed down? Okay, Um, so there's a theory that was, um, that came out in the book in 2005 by a brilliant woman by the name of Dr. Joy DeGray. She's a master's level psychology. She has a master's in psychology, a master's in social work, and a doctorate in social work research. Her theory is called the post-traumatic slave syndrome. What she talked about was years, she, she talked about us first coming up, she talked about 12 years of research, both quantitatively and qualitatively, as shown in her research that we as African-American people and, and Africans and people of the diaspora suffer this syndrome. She said we were captured, shipped, sold, beaten, raped, and experimented on for 300 years, and we still did not get any healing, and we're still being oppressed. And what happens? What happens to us? It affects our self-esteem, our outlook on our life, um, it makes us more have a more propensity to anger and a, a, a violent socialization. 
we have institute we have internalized some of this, these racist behaviors from our society. She described it as a map, MAP, multi-generational trauma together. And it just continues with just a continual oppression. And it is the absence of opportunity for us to heal, to access to benefits from our society. And this leads to this post-traumatic slave syndrome. Let me give you an example. Because she, I'm gonna give you the example that she gave, it was a great example. She talked about this African-American woman who went to a school conference and there were other African-American parents there. And her son, uh, Javon, was with her. And she talked to a white parent and her son, Jason, and she reached, and she leaned over and she talked to the white parent and said, wow, your son, Jason, he's really accomplished this. He's the star on the track team. He's, a, he's an honor roll student. And, and so the white lady talked about, the white parent talked about, yes, my son is this and this, and, my, my, and his uncle is an astronaut. But then the white, the white mother said, but your son, Javon, he's the star basketball player. He got a full tuition scholarship to Princeton. He's this. And the mother, African-American mother said, oh, he's, he's a handful. I have to stay on his back. If, you know, I have to pull out the stick, I got to keep him in line. So at this point, Javon, who's sitting next to him, he has his head down, saying, why won't my mother compliment me? So this is what we learned. Mm -hmm. Go back 300 years, there's a mother on the, on the plantation picking cotton. Her son is there with the bucket. And here comes the white slave owner. And he says to the mother, who's picking cotton, says, wow, your son Johnny has really come along. He's this and this and this. She said, no, he's stupid. He's lazy. Uh, that's not true. What she's doing, that's a protective mechanism. It's a secret. And what happens, fast forward back here, a young black male doesn't understand or don't know the secret. By the time he realizes what the secret is, it's too late. He's already been injured. Mm. It affects self-esteem and self-worth. So we've adapted. We've come up with some adaptations within all these different oppressions to survive. We have all these different adversities to survive. So it's, it's systematic, systematic, institutionalized racism um, that has caused this type of syndrome. So African-American children are not just dealing with PTSD, but what they see on TV, what they may see in their neighborhood, what they may see in their home, what may happen to them. There's a debate between the hardwired MD physicians versus the psychologists and social workers together about um, is this true or not? This is a theory that I believe in. And for the first time, I would say, I'm talking about explicitly uh, on, this, on this platform that you're giving me, and I'm grateful for that. I want to uh, thank you, Dr. Bear. I just mm. want to say this, you know, I'm, I, they, they call me the challenger. You didn't already, you didn't took the crown. <laughs> you didn't this your kid, she didn't pick the crown. She was, this was the official new challenger. I want to so say this. I, I want to, um, you mentioned something on your website about, uh, about the 10 activities that one can do with their children. Um, the adolescent children to help them, um, help navigate them through uh, trauma. And I wanted to go over those for, with, the, with you for a minute. Um, okay. The first one you mentioned was have a real conversation. And I think that was very key because you indicated real and you specified we need to be trying to um, 
tap acknowledge their feelings and let them express what they're feeling instead of dismissing it. Um, you also mentioned creating an open space, a space where they could be free to, to move and express themselves physically. You mentioned the time, spending time together and, and not and spending time together is not just having a child in the room. You did specify playing board games, engaging them, card games, puzzles. Another one of the activities you mentioned was embracing storytelling. And I thought that was very key. Um, allowing them to tell a story. Challenging our child to forecast the future, I thought was a very, very great acti activity. And you did, you specified 2040, like what would it look like to our children for them to write them down and to express that if they either draw it or just to be able to express what they think their ideas of the future are. And I, I really think that's a very good one because many of our children don't see themselves living past a certain age. Um, the next one that you mentioned was tapping into the inner shelf. I like that, cooking with your children. Um, you also mentioned playing dress up, um, allowing our children to, I guess, to step out of their role and to, to pretend to be some, to be someone else. Um, I guess for development, I'll let you, I'll let you expound on that. You also mentioned assigning chores because many of our children do not have chores or responsibilities in the household. Uh, you did mention fostering kindness and taking that mirror and not turning just inward, but to the community. What can our children do is acts of kindness. And you mentioned something about helping them prepare care packages, et cetera. And then also you mentioned um, having like a karaoke night or, or band or dance night. Those activities to get our children's mind off of trauma, but yet at the same time, activities that stimulate them emotionally and intellectually. So do you want to expound on that? talk about uh i put it in my next blog on the following week i believe i talked about spirituality how children should be allowed to express themselves in that respect like some children go to church some kid goes some some children go to synagogue some children go to the mosque that them express their spirituality and and, and that and throughout the african-american community even though some uh young people today don't of african-american and that from the diaspora don't go to church they do have a sense of spirituality may have learned from their grandmothers or their aunts or uncles or someone within that african-american community and this is something that has proven uh in our by research that as african-american people this has made us more resilient in order to sustain and, and to make it through these very oppressive times um particularly slavery but when we talk about spirituality are we just talking i mean because those are like kind of the dominant religions but uh, I'm noticing that a lot of more African-Americans are expressing themselves culturally in other ways now. I mean, I'm sorry, spiritually um, in other ways with traditional African um, religions or, or just other types of spirituality. Are you seeing that and is that, um, or, or are you seeing more of us coping with the other, the traditional means of spirituality? What I'm seeing over the last five, what I'm seeing along along the last five years is someone who's, or the X generation, or particularly the millennial generation, they're more accepting to, they're more practicing um, um, spirituality. They're not of the concept, the dogma of religion. People call it dogma of Christianity, Islam, well, or um, or Judaism, because all of these religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Yoruba. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, 
and people of the Dogon tribe, the original people that were here 3,200 years BC, all came from African spirituality. It's a term that I talk about a lot in my lectures uh, and to my friends and my family. It's called Ubuntu, something I learned from Winnie Mandela. Mm -hmm. When I met her uh, in 2001, uh, she said, I want you guys to repeat after me. She grabbed my hand. She said, I am. Repeat, I, both of you. Uh, I, I, am. I am. Because you are. Because you are. You are. And you are. And, and you are. are. Because we are. Because, because we are. are. Because of the breath, the energy of God. Because of the breath of the breath, energy, of, the energy God. of God. That's Ubuntu. Right. So okay. that came from the sand people. That came from the sand people in South Africa. Oh, how you come back to African spirituality. How you come back and talk about your book. Why you coming back multiple times. All right, listeners, this brings us to our challenges. And I already lost my crown, so I don't even know what I, I Dr. Bell that took the crown. It's the new challenge. We didn't crown the, the new challenges. But she has six ways to encourage positivity um, on her on her blog. And you all need to go go to it. It's areyoucompetent.com. I think that's what it is. But Doc, you are being no, the I, are you culturally competent? Are you culturally You got to go read it. You got to. Uh, I don't know how. To, how often do you? Uh, so, so, so you can. It's it's on forty three different websites. There's forty different websites okay. you can get on Amazon.com here in America and international Amazon.com. Are you culturally competent? I have lectures uh, coming up. I gave a lecture to the Illinois Department of Corrections to two hundred and forty six people in March before COVID hit. I had lectures at the University of North Carolina. Louisiana, Mississippi Med Surge, TEDx talk is being rescheduled. I'm giving a commencement speech uh, for my alma mater, Iowa Wesleyan University in October. Uh, next week on Wednesday, June the 17th, from 8 to 10.30, I, from 10 o'clock, I will be talking about trauma in children and adolescents, and it's live, it's nationwide on Health Healthcare 360. Uh, so I invite, I'm going to send the link to Dr. Muhammad and Ms. Akila, if you want to join in and ask questions, feel free. And uh, I tell you, I would do my best to answer your question. If I don't, I'll go back and do the research and get an answer to you because I have elders that teach me. Okay, I didn't get here by myself. It's been years of learning. I don't mind telling you my age. I'm almost 59. And I'm, I'm grateful to the universe, to the creator for uh, connecting me to this knowledge so I can share with you today. Thank you. This is why I claim you as my name. You know, when I first met you, I said, oh, yeah, this sister right here. <laughs> Definitely. I, then I did then I, then I want to tell you, Dr. Bell, I said, you know you my Naomi, right? Now, let yes, me go ahead and go through the six ways to encourage positivity. This is that I that we got from the site. And uh, these will be the challenges for the day. The first one is to plan a structured day at home. We need to be we have structured time with our children. The second one is to acknowledge and validate their feelings. We have to stop dismissing our children's feelings. We have to acknowledge them for one because they exist. But we always have, we have to also validate and let them know that, okay, we hear you. Expressing yourself is healthy. The next one, um, the third one is the focus on the positive. So much negativity in this world. Our children um, not being able to finish school um, historically like they've been able to. Um, let's focus on the positive. It was more time at home. Uh, number four is build bridges. I mean, while people are stuck at home, Skype, FaceTime, Zoom, texting, make sure that we keep our children connected to loved ones, to, to family and friends. 
The fifth one is to clarify rules. We need to clarify those rules with our children. The sixth one is to strengthen the immune system and the mental health of our children. We have to ensure that our children are eating right. This always eating out, that's really um, minimizing their immune system is weakening it. So we have to focus on not just uh, the mental health of our children, but the immune system as well, because that does contribute to their mental health. And those are the challenges for today. And Dr. Bell, this is where we give you the floor. I know you did mention um, your book, but let everyone know again where they could uh, actually purchase it where they, and let them know where they can find you. And this is your moment. Go ahead. Okay. Well, thank, first I'd like to thank both of the hosts, the co-hosts for this opportunity. I thank you. I'm grateful. Uh, again, my name is Elisa P. Bell, MD. Uh, you can connect to me on my website at h at www.ruculturallycompetent.com. On there, I have, you can email me with any questions. I have a telephone number that you can, um, uh, you can contact and I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you for any speaking engagement. My number is 773-796-4562. That's 4562. So um, my book is sold off the website or you can get it at amazon.com. Uh, for those Barnes and Nobles that are still open, most of the bookstores have my book. And um, you'll probably be hearing more about it as, I'm, as COVID opens up or gets better and improved. I'll start it back my, on my lecture series across the nation, particularly at the medical schools, hoping uh, that not only they consider it being a part of a medical school curriculum, but actually being implemented, not just in one medical school, but a lot of medical schools. This is very important that. They understand, they, under, they understand the conversation that in 2044, the United States of America would be 53% of minority, what they call minority status, basically black and brown um, melanin people. And by 2050, it would be even more. So in order to provide great holistic care, not just physical wellness, but mental wellness, they have to understand the combination. combination. They got to know how to talk to us know something about our cultural beliefs, know something about our, our, our challenges as far as poverty or we can't afford that medication, but yet they need to learn uh, the majority of healthcare providers don't look like us or talk like us, but they have to understand their own biases, their white privilege, and how this affects the conversation we need to provide healthcare for patients. So again, I want to thank you for allowing me to share uh, this topic on trauma in children and adolescents. Um, this is the first time I've explained uh, post-traumatic slavery syndrome and talked about spirituality uh, and death on any um, <laughs> platform. So thank you. Thank you both of you. All right. Thank, we want to thank you, Dr. Bell, for coming on. You have shared so much wealth of knowledge and, and advice on how we could help navigate our children through trauma. Thank you so much. And in that, you've healed quite a few of us adults who, who have who have carry trauma throughout their DNA. We appreciate you. We also want to thank our listeners for always tuning in and listening to what we have to say and appreciating our message. Thank you for all the feedback that you give us, all the impactful messages that you share with us on how our show impacts your way you think and the way you interact with the world after listening to our show. Thank you, and we look forward to speaking with you on our next show.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Conversations with the Royal Impress. Tune in next week for another enlightening conversation. For more information on the Royal Empress, please visit the website royalempress.org. You can also follow the Royal Empress on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Conversations with the Royal Empress is a subsidiary of the Royal Empress Organization. All rights reserved.